0: Thank you. Welcome back to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. On this episode, I have a chat with Kevin Estella. Like most pre internet era kids, Kevin spent most of his spare time in the great outdoors. However, unlike most other kids, he also grew up with the stories of his dad's upbringing in the Philippines during World War II stories of living off the land, living inside caves, and ultimately of survival. After schooling, Kevin pursued a career as an educator and was a high school teacher for over 14 years. Somehow, he also managed to squeeze in an insane amount of time in the wilderness, teaching survival courses, and even writing his book, 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods. However, during the pandemic, Kevin was presented with an opportunity that would combine his love of the outdoors and survival with his passion for teaching. And after discussions with Mike Glover and Kevin Owens from Fieldcraft, Kevin became a pivotal member of the company, and the company's director of training at Fieldcraft Survival. Now, Kevin's an outdoorsman, martial artist, educator, author, survival expert, but most importantly, an all-around awesome dude. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time to be on my show, uh, and I look forward to seeing what the future has in store, and good luck on the next two books. I can't wait to read them. Cheers. On this episode, I am super happy to announce that I've got Kevin Estella from Fieldcraft Survival, uh on this show usually and i was chatting to kevin about this before usually it takes a few months <laughs> to get guests on there's a bit of back and forth dialogue and because you know i don't have this sort of social media clout or anything like that i'm not an influencer you know people kind of vet me a bit more i think but uh messaged kevin today uh luckily i'm wearing my field craft hat as well and uh you know he, he replied back saying yeah let's do it let's uh let's go right now if you want and um here we are so kevin thank you so much for being on and thank you for the quick turnaround. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Th- thanks for having me on. And, you know, you guys can reach me anytime I'm up at four 30, usually, you know, already getting after it. So, uh, you know, happy to, to help out. And, you know, as far as, as far as like, you know, talking to someone who doesn't have social media clout, that really doesn't matter to me. I don't care if you have 5 million listeners or five listeners, you know, if we've got a common, common ground between us, I'm happy to have a discussion with anyone and, and maybe learn something from you. And hopefully you'll pick up something from me. Like we always say at fieldcraft training, like we're just, dudes. You know what I mean? Like we, uh, we're just average people, you know, people want to elevate us to like, Oh, you work for this company. It's like at the end of the day, I'm just a dude, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm happy to be on and share what I know.
0: Awesome. And, and uh, again, thank you for that. And yeah, look, I, I love that humbleness. Um, I think that it, it, it's certainly one thing that carries uh, a company like Fieldcraft, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, quite a distance because, you know, you're willing to get amongst the people. So that, so to say, um, and, and, you know, sort of spread that knowledge and spread that love. Um, so Kevin, uh, as we mentioned before, so just going chronologically, um, tell me about, uh, your upbringing, where, where were you born all that good stuff.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in Connecticut, uh, in the States and, you know, my, my dad was a doctor. My mother was my father's office manager. So, you know, my parents, they had home and office and I grew up, you know, going to school a couple blocks away from my house. I'd walk to school, come back, you know, hang out. My parents were always there. But I was always in the backyard, right? Always in the backyard, or always up at the local park, and you know, lighting fires and having the neighbors, you know, yell, "You shouldn't be doing that up there," and things <laughs> like that. So, uh, as a little kid, you know, I had a, a very good upbringing. I'm never going to say that I, I, you know, had this terrible life or anything like that. It was good, you know. And because of that, um, and my, you know, relationship with my dad, who literally turned 84 today, uh, my dad was. Is the most incredible father ever, you know. Constantly taking me out, and you know, I want to go hiking, Dad. So he, you know, put on his uh, his walking shoes. He would call them, and he would, you know, go hiking in his suit, and then put on his regular <laughs> shoes and go back to to the hospital or nursing home or whatever. Um, and as a kid, I, I learned a lot of my skills first from my dad, and you know, my dad's background really defines who I am. And that, you know, my dad grew up in the Philippines during World War II, uh, and he lived in a cave there from 1941 until 1945. So my interest in survival and, and living off the land, so to speak, and being self-reliant comes from my family's history in the Pacific. Um, and my mother and my grandmother, you know, my grandmother was 98 years old when she passed away, super self-reliant woman, lived on her own for 24 years, and, uh, you know, still working in her, in her garden, picking up rocks at you know, ninety-eight years old. So I had some very strong, self-reliant role models uh, during childhood, and you know, like I said, they allowed me to to go and do my thing in the woods, and you know, it eventually turn into one thing after another careers, or I should say, summer jobs in the great outdoors, and you know, eventually, you know, to a eventual career teaching where I am now.
0: Yeah, awesome. I, I love that. Um, You know, the sort of passing down of knowledge, like you were saying. You know, your, your dad living through those sort of austere environments growing up in a cave, literally which is insane. Um, and then to, to Connecticut and, um, you know, passing down the knowledge that he would have picked up as a, as a, as a child who he would have probably picked up from his parents. Do you, you find, uh, you know, you, you speak to probably thousands of people. Um, do, do you find that that sort of knowledge transfer has reduced uh, in, in recent times within the, the family sort of unit? Um, yeah, also- I'll agree with you. There. Um, I'll agree with you there. I'll, I'll
1: say that, you know, technology, uh, can talk technology and devices, they have become like surrogate parents, mm. you know, babysitters and parents will say, well, look it up on your phone. Yeah. It's like you just miss a golden opportunity to do something really awesome with your kid. Um, I, I think knowledge is always going to be transferred from one generation to another, but what we choose to transfer, if we only have a certain amount of, you know, breaths in our lungs, I think that really matters, yeah. you know, and do you want your time that you spend with your loved one on a device or do you want to put those devices away and experience something more tactile and, and have more of that, you know, kinesthetic, you know, experience with someone that you, you have a blood tie to. So yeah. I think it's changed. I, I wish we had more of the disconnect that mm-hmm. I had as a kid. We didn't have that technology when I was growing up, um, you know, because, I think we're, we're losing skills that, you know, were commonplace 200 years ago, yeah. you know, 200 years ago, a 12 year old could do what most 20 year old men can't do today, you know? Um, and I wish parents spent time teaching their kids those skills because they're character building skills, you know, yeah. and it, it takes a few genera or it takes a few decades of life to realize, you know, when your parents or uncle or whoever says, Hey, it builds character. It really does. You know, you yeah. always thought that. Hey, it builds character, Was just a line that they use to get you away, but it, it really does build character to, to work through a, a tough uh, task or a skill together.
0: Absolutely. And I think also, um, I, I'd even argue that not even 200 years, like I think it was even less than 200 years because you know, sort of the ramp up of technology has only really been the last, let's say, 30 to 40 years or 40, 30 years. Um, I also feel like when you teach someone a skill that you know you were taught uh, it only reinforces your own sort of uh, knowledge base and 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 how you understand the task itself as well. Like you only get better as you teach, as opposed to like you're saying outsourcing information uh, through the internet for your children when you could be there, you know, showing them how to tie their shoelace or you know whatever it may be. Um, a lot of the the stuff you do on on social media, which I find fascinating because I was never really shown as a kid. I, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, sort of this you know metropolitan uh, sprawling urban jungle. Um, so there wasn't really too many needs, I suppose, of me to have to tie various knots or anything like that, unless we went camping. And even then, I think we were lazy enough to have like pop-up tents and, and things like that. So I, I love watching your videos when you're discussing knots and, and, you know, different different aspects of that, which we'll get into. Um, what was going on around sort of uh, the world at the time of your Bringing like uh, what were the social sort of events, uh, you know, what were the current events at the time?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s and in the 90s. So we're talking like Reagan era politics. We're talking, uh, you know, cold. I'm not sorry. Cold War. Uh, the Gulf War. Right. Yep. Ninety two. And, uh, you know, I remember around that time we experienced like a economic slump in in my hometown, you know, where a lot of the jobs went to the Midwest. And, you know, we, we had a period of urban decline. but you know, for a 12 to say 17 or 18 year old kid, you don't really notice that because you're in the economy, but you're not in the economy, you know, like you're not paying as many bills as your parents are. Yeah. And you'll hear stories, you know, from your parents. But again, I spent a lot of time in the woods, you know, the nature center where I first went hiking with my dad was only, you know, four or five miles from my hometown, uh, home, home, my childhood home. And, you know, I would go to South Mountain all the time, which was, you know, near lake compounds in my my hometown and I'd go camping there. So a lot of the stuff that I did, it was, you know, you're kind of numb to it. You're, you're kind of like ignorant to what's happening around you. Um, in the 90s, you know, the Internet was just coming about. I remember dial up, you know, going yeah. over to my, my oldest sister's house for the first time and she's like, check this out, you know, and you would click on a page and you would slowly watch that page. <laughs> you know populate and I was like this is the coolest thing ever and then this is the funny part for for my upbringing and kind of like my uh you know introduction to the great outdoors community is in the late 90s right like that's when I went to college and uh I met a friend of mine his name was Brian Jones and he walked into Eastern Mountain Sports which is a outdoor retailer you know here in the United States and uh, Brian was like, Hey, I know you're into knives. Uh, I see you've got one clipped to your, your pants pocket and you've got a multi-tool and this thing. He goes, you should really check out this online discussion forum. Like, <laughs> What's that? <"This> an <laughs> online discussion forum, right. Um, you know, where you've got all the topics on one side, you've got all the responses. I'm like, all right, I'll check it out. And it was blade forums. And then there was knife forums. And then there was outdoor survival skills forums. And I, I started clicking on these. I'm like, Whoa! These guys talk about survival skills. This is <laughs> actually really awesome. And oh my god, I never, I never saw that. And then I remember being 19 years old, and I, uh, I found Doug Ritter's website, Equipped to Survive, and I'm like, whoa! This guy takes his survival kits to the next level. And, and now I'm friends with Doug. Right? Like right. I know Doug on a first name basis, and I see him at trade shows. Um, but around that time, that's really when all this information that you know, we're sharing at Fieldcraft and that you can find in all these classic texts, it's now becoming digital Mm. and it's becoming shared so readily. And, you know, you might be talking to someone who is uh, an absolute, absolute uh, subject matter expert, and they are a couple clicks away on the keyboard. So I remember, you know, going back and forth with some of these guys like Greg Davenport and Ron Hood and all these names that, you know, most people don't even know today because they're like the OG survival instructors yeah. as opposed to, you know, the ones that are appearing on all the cable network shows. Everyone's yeah. a survival instructor if you go on uh, on these shows now. Yeah. But uh, the ones that were actually proven back in the day before, you know, they didn't care about fame. I was like, geez, this is incredible. And then uh, I remember the first time I went to a, a skills rendezvous in North Carolina and I told my parents, I was like 26 years old, I was bringing guns with me, it didn't matter. But... Uh, I told my parents, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to the woods to meet up with a bunch of dudes I met online, and they're like, "You're doing it? Well, You know?" They thought I was, I thought I was going to, you know, meet my maker. Um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting time to grow up and to kind of watch how all this information became so accessible, uh, and it's still accessible, more accessible now than ever, yeah. and people are still finding it, uh, you know, very. Very appealing to come and learn in person because even though all this is is at your fingertips, it really can't replace learning from someone right next to you. Being able to get answers so much more readily, yeah. Um, yeah it, it was just a. I'm all over the place this morning. I need no, coffee. A- <laughs> so, it's-, it's so cool to watch that transformation of, of of
0: technology, you know, and and how it was shared. Yeah, it, it's so true though, and especially with what you guys are teaching, where it's so tactile, and um, you know, if if anyone listening isn't a survivalist or into sort of survival, I suppose it, it's almost I, I equate it like with learning how to tie a tie. You know, there's nothing better than like your dad or you know your uncle or whatever showing you how to tie a tie, um, as opposed to like watching a YouTube video and like just getting all fumbled up. Um, there's somebody there to guide you through it, uh, you know, in the most basic of things. Um, but but yeah, because it's so tactile and it's such a perishable skill set as well that, you know, if you're not keeping the reps up and I suppose having somebody there makes you accountable as well, um, you know, you're, you're building that that, that skill set. I, I love that, um, the, the the throwback to the discussion boards on, on early internet. Uh, I feel like that was kind of like almost, I'm not going to call it the golden era of the internet, but like people are actually having, you know, proper discussions. Things were, you know, I feel like that's what the internet was designed for, the actual sharing of information and, and building on on ideas and 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 things of that nature, as opposed to trolling and, and all that sort of stuff you have now with bots and, and, and all that rubbish. Um, so what you were talking about college before. What um what did you study in, in college or at uni?
1: So when I when I went to Fairfield U, I went in as an undeclared major. I didn't really know, you know, with a dad who is Asian and and a doctor. Obviously, like, oh, you should become a doctor or a lawyer, you know, like. Classic. Become. It was always white collar. Be, be this, be this, be this, right? Why not both, was,
0: Kevin? Be a doctor yeah, and a lawyer.
1: <laughs> like, you could be like a, that Korean Navy SEAL who's also an astronaut and a Yeah, John,
0: Johnny Kim. He's about to get his uh, pilot's license now as well. Like, you yeah, son and, of a you know, bitch. <laughs> and,
1: and the running joke is, you know, his mother says that all. You know, yeah, like, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Asian parents. Um, so, yeah, the that was the the kind of like what my dad wanted me to do. But at the same time, he also said, it's totally fine if you don't, you know, like, uh, the medical career that my dad started in, you know, it's very different than where it is today. Uh, insurance companies pretty much ruined a lot of like the doctor's practices, uh, in this country, because, you know, a doctor might spend X amount of his time and, and get a fraction back from the insurance company of what was billed, you know, to them. So, uh, you know, my dad really was like, look, you can do whatever you want, you know, and just don't stop studying and stop learning. And that's been a message my whole life, be a student for life. Right. So I went to Fairfield and I started studying around and I'm like, okay, uh, maybe I will go to law school. And by the time my senior year came around, I had gone and I had taken like the practice uh, law school admission test, the LSATs. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to take the LSAT on, a, on this one particular Saturday. Well, my senior year in college happened to be the senior year that 9 11, 2001, happened.
0: Oh, wow. So
1: 9 11 happened, and I was supposed to take the LSATs, or I'm sorry, not I was supposed to take the LSATs. I was supposed to go to the World Trade Center that following Saturday to a law school convention that was at the Windows of the World restaurant. Whoa. Now, 9 11 happens, and I'm going to school 50 miles away from New York City, straight line. And it's like, what the hell am I doing? You know, you're 21 years old. You're worried that there's going to be a draft. I was never in the military. Um, You know, my dad asked me at a very young age. He's like, promise me you'll never join the military because he saw what the military and war did to his country. And I was like, dad, I love you. I won't do it. So uh, at that time, I started questioning, like, do I go to the military? Do I do I fight for this country? Do I, you know, continue on the path? And and honestly, I had so many so many questions and very few answers. Hmm. So. Later on that year, it's come time for graduation, and I'm graduating with my degree, but I don't really have a, a strong plan for what I'm going to do that summer. Yeah. And my older sister was like, you should become a substitute teacher and get your master's degree and figure it out while you're while you're waiting. So I went to Trinity College, and I started getting my master's in American Studies. And while I was there, I started substitute teaching. And I was like, you know, these kids that I'm substitute teaching for are actually receptive to me talking to them about history and giving them my way of coloring history, explaining things a different way. I'm like, let me just see if I should be a teacher. So I took the exit exam uh, to become a teacher before I took the (laughs) entrance exam. Right. And I was like, if I know it, I know it. If I don't, then maybe it's not meant to be. Well, I passed the exit exam like two points away from like this distinction level. And I'm like, shit, I guess I should, I should be a teacher. (laughs) But now the real, the real scare came in because I was like, I've got to take the entrance exam. And even though I'm half Asian, I am the worst Asian with math. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to do more for the entrance. (laughs) So I ended up passing the entrance exam. And I'm like, "Okay, I've got a master's degree. I passed entrance and exit exam. I'm good to teach. I'm like 24, 25 years old, something like that. I get a, a teaching job. And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. I mean, I am teaching at a college as well. I'm teaching Western civilization at a college. Right. And then I got a letter from the principal that says, you're not highly qualified to teach at a high school. I'm like, I can teach at a college. I have a master's (laughs) degree. I have published doc, published research papers, and I'm not a high school qualified teacher. So I had to go back to school. I'm like 25, 26 years old to get a second degree, a a master's degree in education and my certification. And I finally was qualified after that. Um, So it took a while. For me to become a teacher and I got knocked down a couple times in the process um, but it was a great job in the time that I, I was there yeah uh, and if it wasn't the same job when I left
0: yeah and that's amazing like how uh, you know sort of certain doors may close and then others open um, but I guess that sort of the mindset and having the persistence to stay with it uh, and keep sort of doing you know what you can do and do to the best of your ability to, to sort of I suppose have your goals come to fruition. That's, that's, that's an amazing story. How, how long did you teach for it? And like, what, uh, what subjects did you teach? Um, was it just the one sort of American history uh, or was it just history in general? Um, as a certified
1: social studies teacher, Um, I was six through eight and then I was also nine through 12. So I could have taught junior high, even though my job was at at the high school. Um, I taught everything in the curriculum with the exception of economics at one point or another, I taught everything in the curriculum. I taught, uh, world history, nine U S history, 10, uh, geography and cultures, law and justice. Uh, I taught psychology, sociology, um, AP world history, AP human geography, uh, I, the only thing I didn't teach was APGov. My friend Jenny uh, taught AP Gov, and she taught it really well. Um, and then at the end of my career, which was 14 years and two months, um, at the end of my career, I was back to where I started. I wanted to teach the freshmen because right. I really enjoyed teaching that grade nine because these kids come in and they are scared out of their mind. They don't yeah, know freshman. how to interact with people who are 18 years old. But when you're 14, you're a child when you're 18, like some of these kids walking around at 18 were bigger than I was, yeah. right? And like, these were men, you know? Yeah. So these little 14-year-old kids, they're freaked out. They don't know how to interact with one another. They don't know how to apply middle school skills to high school. And I felt like I, I could make the greatest difference in those kids. I could set them on a good trajectory yeah. at age 14, grade nine. And then by senior year, they would come back to me and thank me and say, man, that class freshman year was so tough. But you are so and you are so strict with your research writing uh, and your papers. But I'm going to the school because of you, and, yeah. and and to have like a valedictorian uh, like this kid Mike Kaminsky who's just graduated from the Air Force Academy. He he was interviewed in our local paper, and he's like, "Mr. Estella taught me lessons in the classroom, but he also taught me how to be a good man." And I was like, "Oh,
0: oh. Damn, you know, like yeah. that." <laughs> it, just, it sits with you know. What a testimonial. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like, you're right, like, you know, you, there's, I think, certain characters in your life that really change the trajectory of how you go about, you know, the course of your life. Um, for myself, yeah, I, I still touch back with my fifth grade teacher. She used to make us do like um, presentations and like sort of 20 page reports. And then we'd have to present those reports to the principal and the and the uh, headmaster. And you're like fifth grade, you're what, 10 years old, maybe. Um and like, you know, having to do any sort of presentation in front of an adult, you're like, holy crap, this is really scary. But what that sets you up for is success when you're dealing with all sorts of people from, you know, like in organizations from the lowest sort of rank all the way to the highest rank. And um, it's, it's skill sets that I continue to this day. I'm like, I look back, I'm like, where in, in my life did I learn these skills from? Bang, fifth grade, Miss Ghazali, shout out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, that's awesome. That's, that's brilliant. And what what made you, um, or not made you, but what was the decision point of, of leaving uh, the education system? It was Mike (laughs) Glover, son of a bitch.
1: So, so 2020 was our COVID year, right? Like that was the year where schools got shut down in February, and we're like, oh, we're going back in two weeks. Oh, we're going back in three weeks. Oh, four weeks. Oh, a month. Oh, and we we were taking bets as teachers, like, how how, when do you think we're going back? And and one of my friends, he was like, we're not going back. uh -uh, Not (laughs) happening this year. And I was like, there's no way. This is gonna this is gonna blow over. Well covid happened and we were doing this like distance learning which was a joke and any educator that tells you that it's as effective distance as opposed to in person they're lying through their teeth i hate online learning i will i will come yeah. out and say that we have online learning at, at our uh, through fieldcraft i would rather have you in person than do online i yeah. get it some people don't want to be in person but i'm going to tell you that you're not going to get the same education sure yeah in person online it's they're not one in the same. So we, uh, I get this message from, from Glover, right. I was on Glover's podcast in October of nine, of uh, 2019. Yeah. We start talking about both being half Asian about survival about guns. You know, we're talking for like 90 minutes on the podcast. And then we get off the phone We keep talking for like another 90 minutes. And next thing you know, like he's following me on social media. I'm following him. I'd comment every once in a while on his posts and vice versa. So, uh, so Mike messages me on my sister's birthday in June of 2020, and he goes, hey, have you ever thought about teaching survival skills full time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: I was like, Mike, I have I have my own company, right? I was running Estella Wilderness Education since 2011, and I was doing well on the side. Anytime that I wasn't teaching at the high school, I was running courses for my company, product reviews, magazine articles, this and that.
0: Oh, and, and, and no big uh, deal as well. A book as well. So we'll get into that in a, in a little yeah. bit. <laughs> and the book is how Mike found out about me. So yeah. uh, so Mike, he says to me, he goes, well,
1: what if I were to offer you XYZ? And I'm like, okay, now this is tricky because I really hated where public education was during COVID. Yeah. And I really liked the idea of changing careers. But let's keep in mind, I had 14 years in, so I'm already collecting a pension mm. when i turn uh 55 i'll be collecting a pension but uh i was like i'm halfway through my teaching career like this doesn't make sense for me to leave and lose all that time but time is is a commodity that we don't have an indefinite amount of uh, amount of like it, we have a very short amount of time on this earth and we got to make the most of it so i go out and i teach a course with fieldcraft and i meet kevin owens and mike is like here talk to kevin about working at the company kevin owens Mike might've offered me the job. I think Kevin Owens sold me on the job. And yeah. it's one of the reasons why I eventually wanted to work here in North Carolina for Kevin is that I respect his leadership style more than anyone else. And, yeah. and I would walk over glass for Kevin Owens. Um, so I teach this course and I'm like, yes, this class is freaking awesome. I love field craft. It's so cool. Um, I saw what I was doing as like, multiple steps behind what Fieldcraft already accomplished. I'm like, I could join Fieldcraft and run it. Let's go. Yeah. So I get back to being a teacher that fall. Um, and right off the bat, I'm like, oh man, this sucks. Because <laughs> I, I got a COVID test before I left Arizona. No COVID. I get back to Connecticut. I go into work and they're like, oh, you were in Arizona? I'm like, Yep. You need to quarantine for two weeks. And I said, why? I, I'm negative. They're like, Oh, no, that was a high transmission rate, a transmission state. And I said to him, I'm like, I here's the paper that says I have no COVID. Oh, you must stay home. I'm like, fine. So during the convocation, when they invite all the teachers back and we hear from the speakers, I'm like, screw you guys. I'm going online and I'm getting my archery certification so I can go both. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, I said to myself, I'm like, all right, I'm going to finish up year 15. Uh, and then i'll retire after 15 years of being a teacher and i'm going to work for field craft well they started throwing out all this crazy you know uh gender this and orientation that and i'm like you know yeah. we're going to teach subjects not a, necessarily the content that our health teachers supposed to teach yeah and you guys are are telling us that we're not allowed to send a student three feet away to the right to his locker he has to walk no exaggeration, one sixth of a mile around the building to get to his locker three to four feet away because of COVID one way hallways. I'm like, this is so crazy. Like, I can't in good faith say I believe in this yet. If I'm asked by a student, why are we doing this? I can't say well, it's my opinion that it's wrong. I was like, yeah. there's an integrity issue here with my job. I can't be honest. And integrity is so important to me. I was like, I'm done. So I put in my two weeks notice. I left in October. By November, I was out in Utah looking for uh, a place to live. And by January, I had sold my townhouse in Connecticut. I was driving across country <laughs> to Utah, and uh, I started at Fieldcraft. I got in on Friday, and I taught a class
0: of Fieldcraft on Saturday. Oh shit, that's amazing! What is yeah? I mean, just going back to the COVID policies, like, like I just find it just insane. Like you know, you have to wear a mask when you're walking to your table, and then when you sit down. Take your mask off. It's fine. Like, so anything above, you know, sort of four feet, that's that's really dangerous. But as soon as you're seated, there's no COVID. Like, you know, it just makes no sense when you're, yeah. It's, anyways. But what do you do? You're not like a scientist. I mean, come on. Science.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, hold on. One, one more thing drove me over the top. Because I have a very, I have no poker face, right? And I am a person zero filter. Like, I've definitely, definitely said things in company meetings at Fieldcraft where people have said to me, they're like, you can't say that. I'm like, why not? It's it's on my mind. Let's say it. So uh, during COVID, they are like, oh, we're going to have one-way hallways. But then there was a fire drill. And we, we're doing this fire drill. Get out of the building, right? No kid in the history of public education has died in a fire after modern alarms and sprinklers, right? Yeah. We still do fire drills. So we're doing this fire drill. And they get over the loudspeaker. And they're like, don't worry about the one-way hallways. Uh, we're not using them during... Uh, a fire drill and i'm like and i'm saying this as i'm walking out of the building i'm like so apparently covid will not infect us during a drill guys yeah we're gonna do drills (laughs) every day and you can't say that And i'm like why not where's the logic here and I, i was done i was so done with being a
0: teacher that's hilarious that's that's so funny yeah wow um so the the move to feel so originally yeah they were in arizona or you guys were in arizona and then the move to utah so were you sort of part of the first group of classes that was run out of that the utah hq now
1: yeah so fieldcraft moved from prescott arizona to utah around september of 2020 i moved to utah in january of 2020 the the retail store was still being built at that time um and we didn't have our grand opening until like february or march um And, you know, Utah is a beautiful state. The, the area is just striking. You know, I like, I went from living in Connecticut where I was at about 400 feet sea level to living at 5,500 feet sea level. So the, it took me like the two years that I was there to acclimatize to, or acclimatize to, the, to the elevation. Sure, yeah. um, but I mean, you have the ability to go and hike Timpanogos, which is an 11,000 foot mountain. Right. So it's just amazing, amazing uh, mountains out there. And I I loved every minute of the the scenery. And then, you know, we had access to uh, this huge 2,500 acre property that's owned by the owner of Kafaru. So I could go out there and and stretch my bolt gun to we had 980, uh, 980 yards lasered from the farthest ends. So like you could shoot a thousand yard shot if you wanted to. Um, we could do that anytime you wanted to. And it was just such an incredible playground. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's some issues with Utah. You know, like it's so spread out, the yeah. population density is not there. Uh, so by the end, I was selling out courses and we were doing two day courses and having people fly in and drive in and whatnot. Mm. But Utah is better for a headquarters, not necessarily a great training center. And that's right. why Wilcraft okay. East more population density out here people can drive in in a day take a course drive home yep. it's not like they fly in get a rental car get a hotel next thing you know a 300 class is is 1500 yeah.
0: you know yeah, and, and that fieldcraft east is out of uh, is it aberdeen north carolina it's correct yes yeah, yeah which is kind of cool because i'm in aberdeen scotland but <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah the um uh, yeah i guess like the strategy uh, you know uh, might be just pulling strings here but uh, is it just to have like sort of a field craft, um, brick and mortar sort of f- facility, east, west, central, north, south sort of, you know, to, to encaps- encapsulate the, the U.S.? Yes, yes. And I mean, with any business, there's
1: always going to be growing pains. Sure. And, sure. you know, Kevin Owens moved out here to North Carolina because that's where I mean, we have as a company a lot of roots in this area, both mm-hmm. Kevin and Mike going through uh, the Q course and going through, you know, the yeah, SF community. community. Yeah, I mean. Southern Pines has the highest concentration of Tier One operators in the entire country. Like we always say, it's the safest neighborhood. Like who the hell wants to break into a house? <laughs> that every dude is, is like a bearded, you know, barrel chested freedom fighter. Yeah. But uh, you know, at the same time, like if ever Putin decided he wanted to launch a nuke, we're probably going to be the first ones like that. Uh, yeah. so now, uh, you know, we have Fieldcraft East. We have Utah. They're going to be doing some stuff in Texas. And my, my hope, I would love there to be a field craft northeast and to establish up in New Hampshire or Maine. Right. Um, if I had the opportunity to move again, I would move there. I yeah. would love to be back to my, my home region. I know those woods better than anywhere else. The desert was fun to play around in for two years, and I learned to be pretty proficient in the desert. down yeah. Here in the southeast, the flora and fauna are very similar to the north, but yeah. they're not exact. Um, you have more like sugar pines down here, loblolly pines, as opposed to the white pine that we have up, up north, but it's way more familiar for me here than it is out in Utah.
0: Yeah, okay. um, yeah.
1: and yeah, we are, we are branching out, you know, we've got partnerships with some companies that are, you know, here, there and everywhere. So yeah. we'll operate anywhere. Um, but we just have to make sure that our business decisions to, to run a class make sense. Yeah. You know, people are like, Oh, come train with us. And we're like, how many people do you have for us to train? Oh, we got three people. Yeah, we got to put in a, on a plane. We got to rent a car. We got to get a hotel. We want to train you, but at the end of the day, we're a business. We got to yeah. keep the lights on and nothing personal, but it has to be a business decision before it's a personal
0: decision. Exactly. And that's why I think like, like you said, like Utah is a great place to have a an HQ. So in those opportunities where there are three people you go, might be cheaper for you to actually come to us as opposed to us, you know, going to you. Um, yeah. The, the Florida phone. I mean, the U S is such a amazing place sort of playground in terms of your natural landscape um you know the the animals like just just everything you you get like like you said like the deserts in utah and then you go up to like sort of portland way and you get the sort of rainforests up there um you know the the water lines and and the, the coastal sort of it's just absolutely like just a fun playground for a survivalist really um just circling back on the book so 101 skills you need to survive in the woods what was the uh sort of catalyst for that book uh how did you you know what was the process like that sounds a bit too wanky maybe but like what was what was your mindset like when you you know you were writing it or what was the thought process that you had
1: so so that that book really uh came about after a lot of time spent as a magazine writer I mean I was I was doing the moderation on those online discussion boards which is always fun because you know I gotta break up arguments online um (laughs) Never really banned anyone, but uh, it is what it is. And then I would put I would put reviews of knives online. And then next thing you know, I got asked by Dan Coppins of, of Battle Horse Knives. He's like, hey, we've got this magazine that we're doing with Dave Canterbury, right, of the Pathfinder School. And we want you to write for it. I was like, okay. So I started writing for these magazines. Uh, prior to that, I did Wilderness Way magazine. And, you know, some of these magazines I didn't get paid for. Right. right. The first paying job was with Dave Canterbury's company. Um, and then, you know, what happened was I started writing for bigger magazines. Right. Like maybe this magazine has 10,000 readers. Well, this one has 25,000 readers. And then eventually this one has half a million subscribers and readers. And it's like, oh, OK, well, I met different people as a writer. And one of them was Craig Caudill, Nature Reliance School. Solid guy, legitimate tracker, right? Like he is a Department of Justice contracted tracker. And right. he had written two books already. I was like, Craig, I want to write a book. Um, and the whole time, one of my other mentors in my life, other than Marty, uh, was Chris Sayoc of Sayak Kali. And Chris Sayoc told me, he said, in 2012, he's like, "Gad, when's your book coming out? And I said, Chris, um, I, I'm not writing a book. Uh, I'm writing magazine articles. I'm good with that. He goes, no, 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 you're ready. And he knew in 2012 I was going to write a book before I did. <laughs> so uh, eventually, Craig's like, okay, I'll put you in touch with my my publishers. And I have an interview with the publishers, and they're like, okay, we we like this idea, and uh, tell us about yourself, and da 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 da. So we have this, you know, kind of you know meet and greet uh, over the phone. And uh, next thing you know. Uh, they're like, hey, can you send us a table of contents? Now, this is the funny part because one of the the messages that came through came through as I was driving to the Wilderness Learning Center, which was six hours away. It was in February in New England, right? So snow on the ground, freezing cold. So I pulled over to a rest stop and I made a table of contents. But before I made that table of contents, before that initial meeting, I noticed that the publisher did a lot of cookbooks, and a lot of those cookbooks were like. 52 recipes for 52 weeks of the year or a hundred recipes or right. a yeah. hundred things you can do with. And I noticed that they, a lot of their titles had numbers in them. And I noticed that they were of that format, which it was like short digestible pieces. I was right. like, I'm, I'm going to write my survival book in the cookbook style. okay? Yeah. Um, and I, and that will hopefully resonate with them. So I sent them 101 skills Next thing you know, they're like, send us a sample chapter. So I wrote the hardest chapter first, which is navigation, because it's very technical. Yeah. And then what I did from there was uh, I, I talked to them. They're like, okay, we, uh, we read your sample chapter. You're a magazine writer. I bet you could write this in quickly. Uh, how does three months sound? I'm like, um, <laughs> it would be like half a year. But they're like, oh, no, no, I bet you could get it done. So from that point on, you know, my habit of waking up at four o'clock, five o'clock really started when I was writing my book because I would write at four thirty to say six thirty. And then I would get showered and changed and go to work. Right. Work from seven thirty until two thirty, come home Write from three o'clock until eight o'clock at night. And I wrote my book from April to July first. And then uh From then it was July until September. I had time to do all my photos and illustrations, and then the book came out the following April.
0: That's so cool. What year was this? Two
1: thousand nineteen is when the book came out, and I wrote it in two thousand
0: eighteen. That is epic. That's so cool. I love the um the like easy to read, digestible format, like you were mentioning. Um, one also because like for me, it's like if you take that book out in the wild with you, you know, you're not going to want some long winded thing that you have to read through because you're doing the task. As you, you know, so as you're doing it, you're reading about it as you're doing it. And so having something in that format just makes the most sense, like and not having this long winded sort of thing. Um, that That's awesome. I love as well that you've, you've done the book because, you know, as we mentioned before, like technology is great. You can find so much stuff out on the Internet now. But generally speaking, if you're you, you hopefully you're not reading the book when you're in that circumstance where you needed it in a survival uh, experience. But, uh, you know, if that eventually happens, at least it's in a book format that you can actually carry with you as opposed to, you know, the grid's down and I can't access my phone, which happens quite often when there's natural disasters and, and you know, whatnot. Um, is, there, is there a second book in the works or anything like that? Or um, I know, of, I know of Mike mentioned in his podcast that he's working on a book as well. You guys sort of sharing sort of ideas together or is that going to be a separate thing?
1: Yeah. So Mike's book is a separate thing. Uh, I think his book is just called prepped and that will be coming very soon. Um, I read through it, you know, and it's a lot of his memoirs and a lot of experiences and how it relates to each person. Uh, Mike tasked me with writing my second book while I was in Alaska in 2021. And he's like, Hey, when you get back, you gotta be, you know, at it to write your book. So he's like, write your second book. That's what I did. Uh, every day when I went to work from, uh, September 1st through October 15th. I wrote it in six weeks and Mike thought it was going to be like till December, right? He goes, you got to write your second book. I wrote it in six weeks, (laughs) 94,000 words. Um, That was in 2021. Now I will say that, I don't know if you want to call it, the ball was dropped. It wasn't prioritized or whatever, but it took a long time for even a book contract to appear in front of me by middle management. So I'm like, like, are you guys getting this thing published? I want my book back. I'll publish it myself if I have to. Right. So I was a little testy there and I'm not going to lie. Like I thought about jumping ship at Fieldcraft. You're not going to take care of my second book as a writer. I was a writer before I was a Fieldcraft instructor. So, you know, I need to get a second book out because I'm an author, right? Yeah. I'm an instructor, but I'm an author as well. So, uh, I finally saw a draft of the book contract. I never signed it, still hasn't been signed because it's not perfect yeah Um, but then mike messages me and he's like hey i want you to talk to this guy who's a writing agent i talked to the guy and the guy's like send me a copy of your book so i send it to him and now we're just waiting so the book has been written and it's a badass book i've sent it out to a few different people and they're like oh this is stuff that people don't talk about and they uh they also like the twist because at the very end you're going to read that final chapter and say, Oh, that Estella dude, he set us up for this entire <laughs> book. And keep in mind that I wrote my first book to get the second book. right? And I wrote the, um, I wrote my second book to eventually build a reputation that I can do my third. And the third book, the goal of it is to get the contract and the advance to go to the Philippines and find the cave that my dad lived. In. Oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah. Explain the family history, explain me becoming a teacher. Like, some of the hardships of becoming a survival instructor, uh, so to speak, a bushcrafter, and then going to where the skills came from. And then, you know, here's a guy that has never been to the Philippines going to the Philippines. And with all the technology that we have and all my assets on the ground, can we find the cave that my Mm -hmm. dad lived in on my family's old property out there?
0: That's so cool. So has no one been back since I mean, not that it. I suppose if if the memories from that cave during the wartime era, not so happy, obviously, but like, has anyone been back at all since since the sort of the 40s or 50s? So so
1: basically, the way that my dad got through medical school and my, my uncles over there got through like law school and college was that my great grandfather or my grandfather over there and my grandmother over there sold a lot of the property that they had, right. Um, you know, buy low, sell high. They sold a lot of that property to fund the the sons yeah. going to school. So I don't believe anyone has been there. And that's one of the hurdles that we'll have to face is that the property is no longer in my family's name. It's yeah. someone else's. Okay. But I have a very loose description of what it is, I need someone on the ground over there to find property records and someone in the town uh, to help out with it. But I have a loose description of what it, what it was inside of a ravine uh, high, high walls on both sides. And it's like, okay, how many ravines could there be on my parent or my my dad's old property out there? And with the technology that's out there now, right. Shouldn't it be difficult? (laughs) I say it. Shouldn't it be difficult to, to find, especially with a good crew of people that are, are seasoned
0: outdoorsmen. Exactly. I think the only reason, like, like, and I'm from, like I said, like Southeast Asia, so I suppose maybe the only issue that you might run into is like how well are records kept in terms of like property sales and, you know, things things of that nature. So, um, wow, that's that's epic. That would be, yeah, so, so what a trifecta, is, yeah.
1: Like, first book is cool. You know, it, it's, a, it's a baseline knowledge book. It's a survival book. Second book is a bushcraft book. It's like, yeah. we're not in the survival scenario. This is long-term living. Third book is this is why the first two were written yeah. and this is why it's important to understand where you came from.
0: Absolutely, no, that's that's epic. Um, just in terms of fieldcraft, so you're, is your title there, is it the director of training? Is, um, is it is it for fieldcraft as a whole or is it for North Carolina? So, so I'm technically
1: a director of training, but we also have Kevin Owens, we have Sean Kirkwood out. Sean okay. yeah. uh, does a lot of the, he does all of the tactical scheduling you know, putting instructors and students where they need to be, uh, Kevin is doing more of the, the marketing now here because being spatially divided from Fieldcraft West, you know, we can just do things faster out here. You know, there's no middleman needed, right? Yeah. Like we've got a guy who can put up classes in 10 minutes, you know, yeah. as opposed to sending in an email, waiting, waiting for someone to wake up, time difference, all that, yeah. um, so I'm technically a director of training, but I'm also our podcast host. Mike Glover yeah. was like, you're our new host. That's it. Host. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I added that to my LinkedIn this past week. Um, but then I'm also like the blogger and, you know, we wear a lot of different hats. Like if I have to take out trash, I take out trash. You know, yeah. you know just like we started the podcast, I'm just a dude. You know, if you join our company or you work for a company and you get this big ego where it's like, I can't do that. I'm the director of training. You're probably yeah. gonna get fired, you know? Yeah. And and most people that have come and joined our company have left because of ego or they've left because of entitlement or they, they've forgotten that every single day you have to earn your place, you know? And and that's true of, of anything. Like I, I love the great outdoors. I worked at a survival school before I joined Fieldcraft. It doesn't mean I stopped training on my downtime yeah. i have to earn my knowledge earn my place daily um because i find that when people don't do that and they just rest on their laurels they lose relevance it's yeah. like you haven't done that but okay yeah you ran a mile in high school in five minutes flat congratulations but can you do it now can you do yeah. it now you know like you're doing it in 15 minutes like yeah i don't care who you were 10 years ago you, i'm with you right now so show me what you can do now
0: you know? and especially in like the situations that you go into when you're teaching these classes like you know having somebody who has claimed things, or, or you know, hasn't been up to date with their skill set. It's very. It, I would imagine it'd be very easy to pick apart. Like you know, there's not much room for error really in terms of the survival aspects of of training. Um, and, and like you said, I suppose, like fieldcraft. I don't know what the category or label is, but like to me, it's like a small to medium size, you know, sort of business. It's not. It, there's no space for not hustling really. Like uh, you know, you need to be at the top of your game to compete against sort of larger entities and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, though fieldcraft has grown significantly since you know I first started tuning in in like like I said 2016 2017 when when Mike was still in his house in Colorado I think it was just Mike and Kurt at that time um, so like yeah. you know it's grown significantly since then um, so just the you know there's there's a lot of things that we've talked about in terms of survival bushcraft you know with the, the state of the world the way it's in now where we've hopefully we're coming out of the tail end of covid um there is obviously the uh all, all the the crisis in ukraine which i you know obviously tuned in when amber went over to poland uh to work um alongside chad robichon his his uh company you know wh- where where do people start in terms of being prepared like uh, and if we can break it down maybe into two categories where where do people start when they're in that metropolitan sort of environment um And then where does someone with, with, you know, no base knowledge, I suppose. And then again, in the same question, in the rural sort of environment in the countryside.
1: The way that I I tell people uh, who are way behind the power curve is you got to start somewhere, right? And if you think about it, whether you're training overlanding skills or first aid skills, navigation skills, marksmanship, combatants, survival, I mean communication right the list goes on and on and on you got to start somewhere and there is no such thing as a silver bullet take this one class you have a comprehensive understanding bullshit like impossible you know i've gone to many martial arts seminars where someone's like Oh, here's this seminar, and then people take the the photo next to the instructor, and they're like, "I trained with this guy." It's like, okay, that guy's been training for thirty years. You took a three hour <laughs> seminar, yeah. not cool by association, right? Yeah. You might get a certificate, It doesn't mean
0: anything. You can wipe your ass with that. Yeah. Um, and again, here here's here's Kevin Unfiltered coming out. You know, I... <laughs> that should be your next podcast, I think, Kevin. Kevin Unfiltered. Oh yeah, you know I should go on some. Race. And then like sponsored by like Black Rifle Coffee or something like the Unfiltered. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll just <laughs> I even brew the coffee. I'll just chew the grinds. Um, so, uh, so yeah, where, where does someone start? In my classes, we talk about readiness, right? Readiness formula is the psyoc readiness formula, awareness, preparedness, and willingness. You have awareness and preparedness and willingness, and you're ready. Well, if you want to think about it, you can say, well, I have this, means I'm, I'm prepared, right? I have a knife, but you have awareness of it. So awareness and willingness are part of mindset and it's part of behavior. And that's something that you can start off with very, very easily, very low budget. So if you know, right, we just had the new year. If you know that you need to lose 15 pounds, you're technically obese, right? I'm not about saying, you know, big is beautiful. I will fat shame all day because big is unhealthy. Yep. Um, and I'm totally fine by saying that. Call me, call me terrible, but prove me wrong. Um, cholesterol matters. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, like, if you know that you need to lose 15 pounds, it starts there, right? It starts with your personal health, because if you don't have good health, you're not going to have the ability to, to hike that mountain, you're not going to have the ability to do compressions on someone when it matters. Uh, you're not going to have the ability to run and gun. Yeah. So I would say that you need to start doing a, an assessment on you first, right? Build from the center out.
0: Right.
1: It then starts with carrying basic equipment on you to improve your capability. If you don't have a knife on you, shame on you. And I love using shame as a motivator because you should have a knife on you because it's what separates us from animals, right? We don't use our teeth and our nails to open things. We use tools. And then carry a lighter because that also separates us from animals. No animal makes fire, right? So if you think about it, if you don't carry that, you're an animal. Um, Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when you need to be an animal, like if you are doing combatives, grappling and striking and things like that. But at the base level, you shouldn't be an animal so uh from there then you just need to come up with what it's going to take to improve you as a person improve your range which usually means i'm going to carry a backpack or have a backpack ready to go and then you start building out from what you carry on your person your backpack you start developing skills and as your skills improve you may eventually go back to what you're carrying on you and say okay uh initially i'm going to carry a folding knife it's like okay great we have got a folding knife but then if you do combatives you realize okay, pressure tested, a folding knife is not coming out. It may never open. I'm going to carry a fixed plate. So now you go back and you reevaluate. And as you go through this reevaluation process, and as you start building out yourself, your bags, your vehicle, your home, you start realizing like everything overarches and everything matters. And, you know, you may even eventually want to have redundant layers. Like, okay, I've got all this here, but if my house burns down, I've got an extra bag at my friend's house with some basic gear. Yeah. you know, like it all has to start somewhere and it can be extremely overwhelming and that overwhelming factor can make you freeze and not want to do it Yeah, because we don't like to fail. We don't like knowing all the odds. You know, um, if you were to say, Hey, you're going to run a marathon, or run a half marathon or 5k and it's going to be X number of steps. You take the first five steps and you're like, Oh, I take five steps and there's thousands more. It's one yeah. step at a time, man. You know? it, yeah.
0: No, and, and I asked that as well because I think, like, I think the the, the word of twenty twenty two was a uh, perma crisis, and it was like this this you know state of constant worry and 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 the unknowns and, and the worry of the unknowns. So I, I always wonder, you know, we live in the countryside now, and, and there's various things. And, and as a former police officer, like, you know, I, I always I've always had my it's such a f- flashy word now, but you know, EDC sort of ready. I've got my, night side, uh, my, my bedside tables just sort of laid out nicely so I know what to pick up for the next day. And and that all came from, like you said, like that self-assessment of going, what are, what are my vulnerabilities? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Uh, and, and just having an understanding of my baseline. Um, so I, I like that you pointed that out, that it wasn't just, you know, that, like you said, like that silver bullet where, you know, wake up every morning at 4.30, jump in a ice bath. And, you know, like, it, it's not that. It's just like within your means, what can you do to be a... a you know, a benefit as opposed to a liability. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's awesome. Um, the, and, and I, you know, I used to catch a lot of flack for carrying, like I, I have a, a tourniquet and um, I carried actually not, not to promote field craft too much here, but uh, I carry in the field craft, um, the original, the OG uh, uh, sheath. Uh, and then I've got the basic hemorrhage response kit that I used to have on the, the visor of my car. And, you know, it, it's easy enough. It fits in almost any pocket that I have in jacket wise, So it's easy enough to carry. And, but you know, you always get flack like, oh, when are you ever going to use a tourniquet? We live in the city. Like, and I'm like, well, as a former law enforcement guy, like I know that it doesn't, we're not there instantly. So like, there's going to be times where you need to apply something immediately because it's going to be, you know, as they say, uh, minutes instead of seconds. Um, So yeah, I completely agree with you. And what you said where it's like, just do a basic check that self-assessment to make sure that, you know, you have an understanding of yourself before anything else. Um, I, I work now in, in, uh, health and safety, um, mainly for oil and gas companies. And one of the sort of ISO standards and, and concepts they talk about is plan, do, check, act. So it's like, you know, make a formula as a plan, do that thing, check off, you know, like you were saying, like this fixed blade versus a folder, uh, maybe I will go fixed blade and then act on that. And then it's just a cycle that keeps mm-hmm. going. Um, so yeah, now just to wrap it up, cause I know we've taken up quite a bit of your time and it's still uh, nice and early in the morning for you. So as a historian uh, and survivalist, what's sort of one point in history or a time in history that you'd like to go back to, not necessarily to live in, but just even for a day or whatever it may be uh, to observe and even interact with, like uh, from that survival historian mindset? I mean, everyone was probably going
1: to think like, if we stick just with US history, right? It's a shorter, you know, left and right limit of understanding yeah. US history. Um, everyone would say like, oh, you, you probably would love to live in like, the wild west and it's right. like you know i've played uh oregon trail and i've gotten dysentery a bunch of times i don't want to you know i don't want to bison and do that um so people would think like i'd want to be in the wild west but quite honestly like i would love to know what america was like in the in the 20th century mid 20th century right okay. like the baby boomer era you know we're talking about like poodle skirts and, and drive-in theaters things like that like that to me i think was when this country And I'll I'll be very patriotic here. This country was riding on high, you know, pre-Korean war, post-World War II, you know, everyone was was just excited to be living. And they really remembered why they should be excited and why they should be thankful. You know, we we take so many things for granted in this day and age. You know, we just had a huge power outage here. And everyone was freaking out saying, oh, I don't have hot water. And oh, my God, I don't have this. It's like, what do you have? You have a roof over your head. You've got the greatest hard shell tent in the history of mankind. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're just camping indoors. And it's so easy to think, what do I not have as opposed to what should I appreciate? Mm-hmm. And to get back to my dad, you know, to honor my dad on his birthday. My dad used to tell me as a little kid, he used to say, you know, when I was your age, I had to make my toys. And I remember being five years old at Woolcott, uh Convalescent Home. And my dad telling me this at five years old. And I became self-aware then, like, be appreciative. Yeah. And my dad used to say things like, when you wake up in the morning, be thankful that you have a voice. Be thankful that you can see. Be thankful that you can walk. Be thankful that you have all your fingers. And, and and my dad used to make me appreciate the little things that they could be taken away from you, but you're born with them, Yeah, you know, God willing, you know? Yeah. And, and that's something that I think in the 50s, people were so thankful as opposed to saying, well, I don't like this because it was... Isn't this a great time to live like, hmm. like I I want to go back to when the the American dream was to earn a living, have the house with the little white picket fence, you know, the wife, the 2.5 kids, you know, the dog, the, the nuclear family. Lemonade, family. Yeah, that's that's where I want to see just for a day and and to talk to people and see what was on their mind then. Yeah. Um, because I think it's very different than it, where it is now, where we like to perseverate on the negative, and we like to to think about things that we don't have, as opposed to appreciate what we should.
0: Yeah, do do you think that sort of appreciation uh, back in like the Boomer generation, what you were talking about, stemmed from the fact that we were so close on the brink of that sort of total collapse, and you know, like we were pretty close to, and and, and the the numbers of deaths and uh, you know in in war. Do you Think that had a profound impact on the societal sort of fabric? Um, and I only mention that because you know, I think people forget that for the last 20 plus years, we've you know, most of the Western countries have been at war with the GWAT, um, and it's it hit pretty close to home, and that's where you get you know, your September 12th concept of you know, everyone was banded together and appreciated each other and all that sort of stuff, um, and you know, how how quickly we forget, so, um, sort of thing. It, you know, to me, it's like. We're still going through a lot of things, but we we just all seem so detached from it because, you know, for whatever reason, it's it really is only a small percentage of our population that go and serve in the military or have any interactions with the military. But I think the most most of society gets detached from that. Um, like, what are, what are your thoughts on what it, what it's about these days? Like, why why the dis, yeah disattachment, I suppose?
1: I think it, it comes from a close interaction with death. You know, you think about that, as you mentioned, a whole generation, uh, nations thought that they were going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. But on a small scale, micro scale, anytime that you lose someone, like this past summer, we lost my mother. And I remember for the few days after after my mother died, I was like, man, does this even matter, right? Like, does does having this matter? Uh, does going there matter? Or does it matter to have family, yeah. you know? And when you have that close interaction, that close, you know, experience with death you realize what actually matters you realize who will be there at your funeral you know who will be sitting in the front row who will uh hear about it online as opposed to you know finding out in real time because they're they're closely associated with you, you yeah. start recognizing what actually matters and and what is more of a facade it's like yeah. We live in a very artificial world right now where it's like, I have 30,000 followers. They're not 30,000 friends. No. um, You have a very close knit group. Like who are your five? Um, And I always say like, when I go someday, I don't want people to be upset. I want, I want my friends to be there and I want them all laughing. And I want them, I want to use however I go, whenever I go as a catalyst to, Inspire people to do crazy things. Leave their teaching career
0: yeah. at age
1: you know, fourteen years in and, and work for a startup company. Um, yeah. You know, travel, sleep under the stars. You know, and 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 go hunting and fishing and 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 just appreciate what you have. You know, but all of that comes from realizing that what you have now will end and yeah. never forgetting that. So if you if you recognize that this ride that we're on is eventually going to end, you're going to enjoy every second of it.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a great way to end this podcast as well. Um, Kevin, thank you again so much for your time today, but also just all the effort, time, uh, energy that you put into everything you do. Um, You know, obviously your your teaching career ended, but you're still the best teacher out there in terms of, um, you know, survival and uh, and all the expertise that you've gained over the years uh, in such an accessible format in terms of your books, social media, you know, all the training through Fieldcraft. Um, so I'll put all your details in the show notes, uh, so as people get in touch with you. Um, but what's, what's the best way that, you know, you, you interact with people. If, if you don't mind sharing that, um, you guys can message me on Instagram, right? At Estella wild
1: Ed. You can email me Estella at fieldcraft Uh, if I'm on my phone, you're going to get a short response. If I'm <laughs> cool. on my computer, I will write something out to you. Um, but realize that, you know, I usually have like a three question max. Uh, yeah. if someone says, Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Question one, um, you got this training coming up. Where can I find it? Fieldcraft survival. Uh, what am I going to learn there? Uh, you're going to learn how to tie knots and apply cordage. And so what are you doing today? And it's going to be crickets. Um, I got to (laughs) move on to that. No, like uh, no disrespect, but I usually have a three question minimum or maximum. And, uh,
0: you know, you guys can reach out to me. I reply to everything. Awesome. And just a pro tip for anyone out there, all you have to do is ask Kevin to come on a podcast and you can have him for an hour and a bit anyway. So, (laughs) um, Awesome. And yeah, thanks so much for your time again. And uh, happy birthday to your dad today. Uh, And I cannot wait to hear about the uh, journey finding the cave where he uh, grew up in.
1: Let's get the second book published first, and hopefully that'll lead to the third.
0: Do it. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin.
1: Thank you so much. Have a great day.